good to have you here. If you are visiting us, we are going through the book of Acts, and uh, we've entitled the series, Anything Can Happen. And we've had the privilege of actually watching a whole bunch of anythings happen and surprise us. It's beautiful to see Nikita getting baptized this morning. We've seen salvations. Yeah, God, God is busy. He's busy in hearts. He's busy in lives and homes. And so we are going to do something a little different today. What I want to do is I want to, I want to take a very ch- big chunk, pretty much um, the entire chapter of Acts 17, and unpack one tiny little phrase, if that's okay. It's, it's, it's the way I, we often tease Raw. It's like Rory's shotgun and I'm sort of laser. <laughs> and today I'm going to combine them both. So if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, basically what's happened is Paul has been ministering around the the Mediterranean Bowl and he's left two of his um, sort of cohorts, Silas and Timothy and Berea, and then verse, uh, actually I don't even know what, uh, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, this is after the Berea incident, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but tick-tock dances, talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. This is where we are heading. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. This is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, just like Rob read this morning, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he doesn't live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Prophetically spot on, Rob. From one man he had made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out the appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. And this is what the phrase that we're going after. God did this so that. If you have your Bible with you, underline so that. If it's on your phone, sucks to be you. You can't underline the phrase. You have to highlight the entire chapter in your version. Bring your Bible. Underline so that. Why did God make the heavens and the earth? Why did he scatter the stars and the night skies? It says God did this so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him for he is not far from any one of us. So that. If you're looking for a title of a sermon, I don't think I've ever given one, but it would be so that. In 2005, the Hubble telescope, it had been up in space for just over a decade. And they set it to take a photo of the night sky, actually a tiny little photo. If you have to look at the moon, it was a photo about the tenth of the size of the moon. And they opened up the lens and they just allowed the light to soak in and capture what is called the Hubble Ultra Deep Field Photo. And this is that photo. And it's that size, hey? 
It's about the tenth of the size of the moon in the night sky. And I want you to know that those aren't stars. Those are galaxies. And what they did was they figured and they looked, and actually there's some symmetry to the, the spacing of galaxies across the night sky. And so they placed all of these little tents of the moons all around, and they worked out that there's approximately 200 billion galaxies in the observable night sky. 200 billion. Now I went to Grover Boy's house, so you lose me at like 12. You know, once I run out of fingers and toes, I'm in trouble. 200 billion. You know that if I gave you a billion rand, just one billion rand on the day that Jesus was born and I sent you shopping, at risk of losing all the ladies this morning, if I sent you shopping and I said, you have to spend a thousand rand every single day, Monday through Sunday, weekends, public holidays, Christmas, Easter, New Year's Day. Today, if you started shopping when Jesus was born, you still have tens of millions of rands in your back pocket. If I gave you one billion rand, now we're talking about 200 billion Galaxies. And within those galaxies are another couple hundred billion stars. And if you multiply the stars and the galaxies, we're looking at a figure roughly between 40 and 50 billion trillion stars. You know, that's like way above my pay grade, long time ago. 50 billion trillion stars. I don't even know what that means. But I do know this. One of those stars we call the sun. I don't know if you've looked at the sun lately. <laughs> there she is. If you had to hollow out the sun, you could put 1.2 million Earths inside of it. Okay. Now, if we, we, we're way above what I can understand with, with my standard grade mathematics, but if you had to take that boy over there and shrink it down to something that we do fathom, this grapefruit, the distance between our sun and the uh, yeah, summary African scars, and the next one, Proximus Centuri, if I had to give it to my wife, and we give you a good distance dimension, I'd, she'd have to climb on a plane and fly to Paris. Yes. That's where, yeah, go babes, we'll wait. <laughs> That's the distance between the first of the 50 billion trillion stars and, and the next one. That's the average distance of the stars at now, just now Milky Way. And so I say all of that to say the scientists look at this and go, like, what's going on here? Why is it so vast? Why does it have to be so spread out? Why do the planets have to be so big and the sun so overwhelming and threatening? <laughs> you know, what is it? What's going on in the night sky? What's going on in our universe? And they started picking apart the, the distance and the density of our universe. And they said, well, you know, surely God could have just taken... You know, planet Earth and put it there on, in a little snow globe on his desk and he could have dealt with us. You know, why does it have to be so distant and so, uh, and our density, only 1% of this massive expanse? And so I looked at that because I also want to know. <laughs> and so the density, the amount of planets and material other than dark matter that's scattered across our universe is less than 1% of everything when you look up the stuffs. The rest is empty space. And the reason why it's, is only 1%, is because if it gets more dense, apparently gravity and the neutrons and protons and, and the nuclear furnace of stars would make elements that would be so heavy that the density would be so great, essentially it would just be one big chunk of rock, our universe. And if it was any less dense, less than 1%, it would be too light and, and the heaviest 
elements essentially that, that could have been created in this process would be helium. So you know, scientists wouldn't be telling us about the Big Bang, they'd be telling us about the Big Burp. So there's, there's this incredible symmetry and, and tension and excellence and perfection to our universe, even down to the density of our universe. And the distance is another fascinating thing. I was taking a look at, oh, sorry, let me actually tell you this. One, one guy said, the more I examine the universe and study the details of its architecture, the more evidence I find that the universe in some sense must have known that we were coming. Unsaved astrophysicist. The universe must have known that we were coming. See, there's a reason why it is so vast and our density is so low. It's so that it could sustain human life. It's as if God set a banquet table so that he could sit across from it and woo your heart. So I want to come after you, but in order for you to exist, it needs to be this vast. Every minute detail, or as Acts 17.27 says, God did this so that we would seek him, perhaps reach out for him and find him. But he's not far from any one of us, but there's more. Not only the density, but the distance. I whipped out my calculator. I found if you turn your iPhone sideways, you can add more zeros. It's like insane <laughs> to try and calculate this so that I can make sense to myself before even trying to make sense to you. But when we're talking these vast distances, one of the reasons why does this vast is because the closer things are, the more gravity affects these bodies and the more effect they have on one another. And I don't know if you know this, but the universe is actually expanding. And if they were any closer, the universe would be expanding slower. And essentially what would happen was we would lose the night sky. If it wasn't this vast, we would lose the night sky. Because what would happen is, I don't know if you've seen Madagascar all those years ago. Uh, what's that? Alex the lion and Marty the, the zebra. They're in New York Zoo. And Marty looks up to the night sky in New York. And he's like, hey, I see a star. It's my first star. He's like, oh, no, it's a search helicopter, the spotlight coming past. <laughs> essentially, if the distances weren't this vast, we would have planets and stars too close to us. And it will essentially look like the day sky when we look up at the night sky. And they say this, they say, as it is, major optical observatories, telescope timers already limited just by our moon. And our moon only reflects 7% of the light that hits it. So the, just the fact that we have the planets arranged in the way that they're arranged and the distance set up so that we don't have any New York you know, uh, noise, well, light pollution, means that we can look into the stars and we can see what's going on behind, beyond the horizon. And if you ask, why is it so dark? Yeah, have you ever thought of that? Like, why wasn't it just bright? Why is it so dark? Actually, I don't know if you know this, but our Milky Way, the Earth, which is sort of like over there, is in the darkest parts of the Milky Way. And the Milky Way is in the darkest region of the galaxy cluster that we're in. And our galaxy cluster is in the darkest region of the super galaxy clusters that we find in it. And so Hugh Ross, an astrophysicist, says, clearly someone wanted us to be able to see all he had done in the universe. Or, as Luke says, God did this so that you would seek him. Are you beginning to see the lengths that our Heavenly Father went to get our attention so that we would seek him? But my favorite, I came across this, something the scientific community has labeled the anthropic 
principle. So the anthropic principle is the observation that the universe appears to have been engineered for the specific benefit of the human species. Okay. Now remember we're saying God did this so that. Can the scientists are saying, no, no, we've observed that the universe appears to have been engineered for the specific benefit of the human species. You can't avoid it. You can't miss it. You have to deny it. You have to downplay it. But it's there. It's pressing up against anyone who spends the time looking at the stars and studying them that it seems to have been engineered for our benefit. And so these two physicists, John Barrow and a guy named Frank Tipler, back in their 80s, they, they looked at this and they thought, no, seriously, come on. And they began to note the laws of physics, the characteristics of the universe, the, the properties of life. And they say, you know, if that is the case, this anthropic principle, they're saying that it actually points to a very small window where mankind could exist. And they added to that the Earth's rotation, the fossil fuel supplies, and solar stability, and all the limitations that the universe puts on us. And they said this, they said, the maximum time window for the existence of humanity is a few thousand years. Just a few thousand years. And then they said, what a waste. Why would you create all of this for a few thousand years? Well, God would say, I did all of this so that. It's not a waste. It was so that. This anthropic principle then gets added to by a guy named Brandon Carter. And he wrote this. He said, listen, guys, I I get that you're saying it's a waste, but he says, the average wedding ceremony lasts only briefly considering the amount of time, planning, and money it requires. (laughs) A couple and their parents often invest large amounts of resources for an extremely short event, but they consider the costs well spent given the event's high significance. Unsaved men. He says, likewise, it costs the material resources of the entire universe to create a small moment where life could exist. A cost well spent if we consider the anthropic principle. So I thought, well, Brandon, you are so close. Let me just tweak your paragraph. So I wrote it like this. The average wedding ceremony lasts only briefly considering the amount of time, planning, and money it requires. I like that, Brandon. But I would change it to say, what if God invested large amounts of resources for an extremely short event, but considered the costs well spent given the event's high significance, a.k.a. you? What if it cost the material resources of the entire universe to create a moment where he could get down on one knee and betroth himself to his beloved? What if Acts 17, 27 is correct? did all this so that, so that we would seek him? What if the density is such so that there's life, so that you and I can come into existence and God can give of himself, sit at that banquet table and woo you and I so that perhaps we'd seek him back? What if the distance is so vast so that we wouldn't have the lights in our eyes like they are in mine, and we could see beyond the horizon. We can see what he was up to, what he is doing, just so that we would know we have a great God, and we might seek him. And what if he looked at the cost, not only of the resources, but the eventual cost of his own son, dying on the cross for our sins, because we're a bunch of chops who look at the Nazi guy and say, Sucks to be you, I'm going to go and do my own thing. What if he looked at the cost of the universe and the cost of the death of his son and said, you are still worth it. Would you seek him? 
Would you seek this God? Because Paul is saying in the Areopagus, God did all of this so that we would seek him. And then he adds a word that I'm like properly bothered by. I don't know if you saw it. God did this so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out for him. Perhaps. How on earth could we look at the night sky? Can we get an understanding of what God has done? And go, ah, sure. Um, let me just check. <laughs> Here's my phone. Oh, hey, look at Insta. That's fascinating. Sure, Donald Trump. Hey, Elon Musk. Uh, I'll, I'll, just, just a second. Just a, <laughs> perhaps. But look at that verse. It says, God did this so that we would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. That perhaps has got nothing to do with the find him. The find him is definitive. Actually, the find him, the degree to which God desires to be found is directly proportional to the size of the billboard where he signed his name. It's not a matter of maybe you'll find him, perhaps you'll find him. No, no, no. He did all of this, it says. God did all this so that you would seek him. Perhaps. Look for him. If you do, you will find him. Jeremiah 29 says, you will seek me and you will find me. That's the entire reason behind creating the universe the way that it is. But I look at this and I go like, perhaps. How could we be a people of perhaps? And in all honesty, it's bothered me this week, not because of the cool kids at the back of the bus, you know, guys on, on Twitter during the church service who don't know if they want to be Christian or want to be cool. That, that doesn't bother me. It bothers me because I find the same perhaps in my heart as a pastor, as an elder, whose job description entails unpacking the love letter that God wrote for us and allowing us to feast on it. I find a perhaps in my heart. I'm going like, what is with me? Why is it that I, perhaps I'd seek him. And here's three reasons why I find in my own heart. And I've found in the hearts of those that I've sat with across the coffee table, wrestling with, uh, I don't know, can God, does God, is God. Three things that I find in my heart that takes a so that and turns it into a perhaps. Here's the first. It's called the baby elephant syndrome. Not my words, it's a psychological term that they used back in the 70s. And it describes what happens to a baby elephant when it's chained to a tree most of its life. So when a little baby elephant, little tyke is born, they chain its ankle to a tree and it pull as hard as it wants. The tree stays right there. They sometimes zap the thing and punish the thing and frighten it so that it gets to the point where it realizes I've only got two or three meters that I can move when I feel this thing on my ankle. So I'm not going to move at all. And by the time this elephant is two or three tons and it can bulldoze its way through a building, it's so convinced that this is all I'm allowed to move when I'm chained that they chain it to a tiny little pig. I don't know if you've seen it. This monster, and it's changed to this. You're like, how does it not go running down the streets of Kolkata? Because what they say is, it's become so conditioned in its mind, it's no longer held by the chain, it's held by a belief. And the reason why we can look at the night sky and take a so that and turn it into a perhaps is because we've been conditioned. We are no longer held by chains, Christians. 
We're no longer held by chance. We're held by belief. The belief that I am not worth it. Or I've been stuck here for so long, what's the chance that I'm going to get out? I've run from God and I've done some things and I'm not actually chained. I just believe I am. And so the first port of call this morning is, whose report will you believe? Are you going to believe the maker of the heavens and the earth? The one who breathed life into existence by the power of his word? Or are you going to believe the chain? There's this thing that comes out of this called projection. The psychologists are struggling with now in therapy. Projection. When I grew up, I used to struggle with rejection. You know, you go to school, we pick you, we pick you, we pick you. It's like, oh, you, you can have it. I, I struggled with rejection. In today's day and age, we're struggling with projection, which means I don't even step onto the field to possibly be chosen for the team. I just know I'm going to be rejected. So I reject myself before I'm rejected by others, which means I reject God before he has a chance to reject me. And I live with this projection. And that is this little baby elephant syndrome. And it has the power to take the, all of creation, the greatest resource ever squandered on mankind, and to take a so that and turn it into a perhaps. Whose report will you believe? So the one is the baby elephant syndrome. It clangs up against God did this so that we would seek him and turns it into a perhaps. And the other one is the Balin syndrome. Now this I made up. There's no psychological term called the Balin syndrome. But it goes well with baby elephant syndrome. Balin syndrome. Balin was a little baby boy. I'll never forget the story. I love the name. If you're pregnant and you're looking for a name, maybe go with Balin to also remind you of my sermon. <laughs> so Balin, when he was two or three years old, his mom fell asleep and he got a permanent marker. And did what all two or three-year-olds do with a permanent marker. Wrote his love for his mom all over the walls and all over the furniture and on the TV screen and on himself. And they were renting the property, so when he wrote all over the wallpaper, she's like, oh, I'm not going to get my deposit back. So she woke up in a tiz, a flat panic, and Balin heard it and saw it and knew he had crossed a line. And so when his dad came home, Balin went missing. He was hiding in the broom cupboard. So he's heard over the phone. Now he sees for himself. He's just like, oh. So now he goes looking for Balin. Balin, where are you? Balin, where are you? Mom eventually like, broom cupboard. So he opens the door, and there's little Balin. Doesn't even want to look at Daddy in the eye. Staring at the floor, hands behind his back. And his dad said, Balin, what happened? I don't know. Do you know who did this? I don't know. <laughs> did your mom do this, Balin? Yes, mommy did this. <laughs> said, Balin, show me your hands. Balin takes his hands out and it's just covered in permanent marker all over the place. I said, Balin... Did you do this? And he's a little chin going and he starts crying. And his dad gets down on his knees and takes those permanent marker covered hands, puts them against his heart, and then wraps his jacket around his hands like this, which brings Balin right into his face. He says, look at me, Balin. 
So when I see you, when I look at you, this is all I see. I don't see your dirty hands. I don't see the dirty walls. This is all I see because I love you. All you need to say is, I'm sorry, Dad, and I'll forgive you. I'll fix the mess. I'll clean it up. I'll pay for it. You can go play. You can even have ice cream if you want some ice cream. Are you sorry, Balin? Yes, Daddy, I'm so sorry. So I forgive you, Balin. You know what keeps us? What turns a so that into a perhaps? Is we like Balin. Our hands are filthy. Hiding behind our backs. You know when Adam and Eve sinned, God didn't say, what did you do, Balin? He said, Balin, where are you? Where are you? I've created all of this so that you would seek me. Don't let the filth of your hands keep you from me. I've also made a plan for that. But because we come on a Sunday and we look at all the squeaky clean Christians who know the moves and interpretive dance (laughs) and they've got a family Bible the size of a small village under their arms (laughs) and you're like me, you're sort of like struggling and you've had a terrible week and your IQ is only just above room temperature and you don't know the original (laughs) Greek. When he looks you in the eye, you're looking at us and you turn a so that into a perhaps. If it's not baby elephant syndrome, sometimes the Balin syndrome, or in a few cases, it's the Bondanelli syndrome. You can quote me if you want. <laughs> to be in psychological textbooks pretty soon. The Bondanelli syndrome. <laughs> So the the reason why I call it the Bondanelli Syndrome is because it's based on Leonardo da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper. I'm sure you know it. There's some sketches that that he put together. Now what's interesting, and the reason why I wanted to pop this up, I'll take it down in a second, is because you'll see that this doesn't look anything like the finished product. He's actually got Judas sitting this side of the table, and there's names right at the very top there where he's sort of saying, this is what I want Peter to look like, and maybe Paul would look like that. Because what he wanted to do, thanks, you can take it down. What he wanted to do was he wanted to capture the moment when Jesus said, someone among us is going to betray me. And he wanted to capture the raw emotion on those faces of what it would look like or what you would imagine Peter to look like. Because Peter and John would have different facial expressions. Uh, Apparently Peter has a knife in his hand, which is kind of the way I would imagine Peter would go. John would be like heartbroken. Peter would be like, I will kill him. I will find you, and I will kill you. (laughs) And so what he did was, and the reason why he managed to get such unbelievable emotional expression on the faces of those that he painted, was he went through Milan looking for people that looked like what he had in his mind and makes it easier to capture that raw emotion. And so he went through the streets, and he would find people, and he actually found Jesus quite early. It's a guy by the name of Pietro Bondinelli. And he got Pietro in and he said, when he looked at him, his face was like an angel. The kindness and the gentleness and there was, there was a purity to this guy. And so he said, when he looked at him, he thought, this is it. This is Jesus for sure. And he painted him. But it took him about three years before he actually finished this entire mural. And apparently, um, one of the articles I was reading, it took so long, one of the priors at the church started moaning. And so uh, Da Vinci said, well, listen, if I don't find a face that represents Judas, I'll paint you into my picture. So just like, be careful. 
but he wanted to find something that looked like someone who would betray Christ, someone gutted by sin, someone out and broken and running from Jesus. It's just a matter of time. And so he started looking in the prisons. He thought, ah, that's it. I'll, I'll find a criminal, that hard and raw face. Couldn't find anyone. Eventually he was in the slums. And he said he saw someone and his face made him shudder. And so he sent his assistant. He says, that's the one. That's the one. Get him. Bring him. Don't clean him. I want him just like that. And so this guy came in and he was sitting down. And so while he was opening up his paint brushes or whatever the case might be, he started a little bit of small talk. You know, what's your name? I said, Senor, it's me, Pietro Bondanelli. And he said, in three years, his face went from that of Jesus to that of Judas. And the guy, Tim Delano, who's unpacking this, he says, that is the power of sin. In three years that you go from looking like Jesus to looking like Judas. And I felt... More certain than I've felt in many, many years that someone would be here this morning and just like Pietro Bondanelli. Maybe it was just three years ago that it felt like you were in ministry of some sort or maybe married to someone who was in ministry. But when people spoke of you, they spoke of you as if you had the face of Jesus. You had it together. You were loving Christ. You were knit into the church. You were pursuing him. And then something happened. And you ended up in the slums, decimated by sin. And you don't even know why you're here this morning. Maybe you didn't even make it into the room. Maybe you're sitting out there in our overflow because there maybe you won't bump into anyone that you know. And that sin has taken the so that. And it is so beyond perhaps that you genuinely don't know why you decided to come here this morning. But I believe that you are here because God did all of this so that you would be reminded of his power to save, to forgive, so that he could take those faulty hands and put them on his heart and wrap his coat around you and look you in the eye and remind you he loves you just the same. He loves the face of Jesus as much as he loves the face of Judas. And he has gone to the greatest lengths known to mankind to tell you that. He's put every star in its place. He has spread the universe to such a degree that life could happen. And he made it so that the lights were just dark enough so that you could see all of that and be breathtaking by that. And he has built a building and paid it off and added aircon so on a summer morning you could come to a place where you know at least you're not going to sweat too much during worship. And he made it big enough so that you can hide in the corners. And he unpacked the scripture in the quiet place of my study this week. So that, so that you would seek him. If you seek him, you will find him. Doesn't matter where on that scale you fall between the face of Jesus and the face of Judas. The same God says to you, would you seek me? Because if you do, you will find me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we look at the night sky, words fail us. How how do we string a, a prayer together before the God who made heavens and earth? 
how do we react to a heart that is so full with love and affection for us mere humans, us frail, fallen humans, and do it justice? But to respond to your word that says you did all this so that we would seek you. Father, I pray that we would be a people who would seek you. I pray whether we find ourselves looking like Jesus where we've got it all together, but we need you, we know we need you. We, we desperately, desperately need the God of all creation. Or whether we have properly sold our lives to sin on the brink of unmitigated disaster as we face consequence after consequence. I pray that wherever we find ourselves in there, that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us the faith to seek you because I know when we do we will find you and you will rescue us I pray for the one who's here this morning doesn't know why they're here doesn't know whether or not they could actually find forgiveness in you may they walk into your presence like they've never known change their lives we pray rescue, redeem, forgive and deliver in Jesus' name. Amen. That's right.